We're going to go through about a half an hour, 25 minutes of Prophecy Focus Global Update. And then uh, we're going to pop right back into Acts chapter 12. And it's uh, actually, it's, it's not real heavy-duty theology tonight in Acts 12, but it's a couple of really good accounts of events that took place. All right, so uh, we'll peel God's Word one passage at a time, starting in a couple moments, but uh, let's go to a couple of things that are happening right now as uh, we spend a few minutes at Prophecy Focus Global Update and uh, see some of the current events that are taking place, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, one of the things that uh, I think you'll understand why I'm going here tonight, a Milwaukee police officer was killed this week, and obviously every time we hear about an officer getting shot or hurt, but uh, much Unfortunately, this particular individual was actually killed via gunshot. And it just, you say, well, what what does that mean to me? And I ask the same question of you. What does this mean to you when we see something like this take place? And sometimes, I mean, it's it's a big event that will happen because of this death, but it's like, why are these things happening? Why are these things taking place? And sometimes I think we actually miss the real point from a spiritual side of things. We get angry about it, which is maybe appropriate. We get disgusted by it. Uh, we want justice. Well, justice already took place, if you will. The person that shot and killed the officer was killed at the same time. Now, that's unfortunate, though. And you say, well, why is that? When you look at horrible events like this that take place, when you look at the loss of any life, and and obviously in those that are somewhat new, I was in law enforcement for 32 years in government work with the sheriff's office, and these are just horribly sad, terrible events that take place when an officer loses life. But it's just as tragic to me that anyone else lose their life. It's like, well, the suspect was shot and killed and justice was served. And, it, and yeah, that's true, but from a Christian standpoint, it's extremely heartbreaking that you've got two dead people. Regardless of whether they were a cop or a suspect, there's two dead people. So let me explain why I'm approaching it from sorrow on both ends. And I go to this particular issue. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 spells out what the true issue is. It really is a spiritual issue. Why was this 19-year-old doing what he was doing? Well, the reason why a 19-year-old was doing what he was doing and why every other criminal does what they do is because something is broken, and that's them. They're a broken individual, they're sinful individuals that have not come to Christ and changed their life around. So it, it's not shocking that things like this take place, but it's horrifying that it does take place, and it should shock our conscience that these things do take place. So it's like, well, what's, what's the remedy? And this is, has nothing to do with prophecy, but it, it has everything to do with what are we as Christians, what are we as a church called to do? 
Bible says, Romans 10, 14, How then shall they call on him, speaking of Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him and Christ, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The reason the 19-year-old was out doing what he did, end up shooting an officer and killing him, is because there was something wrong with his heart. And what was that? He didn't know Christ. He was living as any other pagan would, as any other person without Christ, and he did a horrific thing and killed, unfortunately in this case, an officer. So we're like, well, what's the remedy to this? How do things change? Well, of course, the first thing you always hear, and I and you know if you've been around me more than a, six months, the same thing happens every single time a tragedy happens. The politicians get on the TV, and what do they do? Well, this is a horrible thing. Agreed. This is an awful thing. Agreed. We need to call a council together and figure out what we're going to do. Well, they've been pulling councils together for the last hundred years, and they haven't figured it out yet, nor will they figure it out. Because the only thing that changes the heart is Christ. That's it. Government never changed one single heart. And uh, you know I've, been, I've said that a lot of times. I said it when I was sheriff in Milwaukee County. Government does not change the heart. Only Christ can do that. So despite the tragedy that just took place, it's a reminder to me and hopefully to all of us that if we don't want to see things like this happen, there's only one solution. And that's we have to be active in sharing Christ with others. It's a tragedy. It's a horrible thing. Uh, By the way, the other uh, close to 200 people that were murdered in Milwaukee last year, every single one's a tragedy. Every single one is a soul for whom Christ died that never got the gospel or refused to accept it. So it truly is. It's it's a horrible thing. It's terrible. Um, I've been to more of these funerals than I, I mean, one is one too many. They're horrifying when you go to them. And I mean, every single cop has got his sunglasses on and uh, they do what's called the last roll call. And uh, I don't think I ever made it through one without breaking down. And uh, they get on the PA system and all the, the police are there and all in uniform, of course, all in their properly dressed up and in their, their proper formations and they, they read the last roll call, and they call out the squad number, but there's no answer. And uh, they call it his last call. And it's horrifying. It's just terribly sad. So, again, we have another one that took place, and uh, it's, it's a tragedy. It's horrible. But as God's people, what should it do? Verse 15, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. If God's people would, and and the government would get a clue that calling a bunch of social workers together is not going to change the heart. Never has, never will. There's only one thing that changes the heart, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's it. There's no other answer. So every time you see a tragedy like this, yes, we're upset, yes, we're mad, and Everybody is. It's a horrible thing. It's terrifying uh, of what takes place. But always remember somewhere after you get through the, I can't believe this happened again. I can't, I, it's going to keep happening until folks come to Christ. It's just going to keep happening. And boy, folks, 
we got a lot of work to do, do we? I mean, we just do. So uh, if you ever say, man, I don't have anything to do, there's a whole lost world out there waiting to hear the gospel. We all got something to do. Uh, so it's a matter of if you choose to do this particular venue, which is share Christ with others. So it's tragedy, but let's, uh, let's keep that in mind. Uh, yes, I support the, the police agencies, obviously. I was one for 32 years. I love the police. I love the sheriff's office. I love everybody in law enforcement. They, they do tremendous sacrifice and so forth. And that's not the only people I care about, nor is it all the only people I think that you care about. Why? Because that's just a handful of folks that are law enforcement. How about the others of the 350 million people that live in America that don't know Christ as well? So it's a reminder to me that life is short, tragedy happens, our life is short, we're not going to live forever either. We'll live forever, but not in this human body and not on this earth. So it's a stark reminder about what we've been called to do as God's people. All right, let's move uh, ahead to uh, how many of you read these stories on the, the giant earthquake that's taken place? You're familiar with them? All right, some are, some aren't. All right, so uh, what took place in Syria and Egypt just a couple days ago, uh, two days ago on the 6th, massive earthquake went through Syria and Turkey. Now, this is the report from February 6th. What's today's date? It's the 8th. So these numbers have exponentially increased uh, since this one, but I'll show you the, the update in a moment. So huge earthquake kills more than 2,000. Josh, you know what I forgot? Can you go to the copier and bring me everything that's uh, been printed out? Thank you. I didn't bring all that stuff with me. All right, so huge earthquake kills more than 2,200, which, by the way, what's the number up to now? About 11,000. Uh, in Turkey and Syria, bad weather worsens plight. So uh, uh, when you look at the, the absolute mass destruction that took place because of this earthquake and the amount of people that are perishing because of it, well, you say, well, what, is, what does that have to do with a prophetic nexus? It, it, it truly is. These things are not uncommon. They're setting the stage for the massive earthquake that will take place in the prophetic future, which we'll look at in just a moment. So when we look at this, uh, this is the newest one, came out, I, I took this today. Turkey, Syria, earthquake, death toll tops 11,000. So, I mean, the exponential increase in the amount of people that have died is I mean, just horrific as to what's taking place. Uh, again, 11,000 people, and here's how we usually approach that in our minds. Oh, yeah, 11,000 people died. Okay, what's the next new story? And it, it, it's very easy to get cold-hearted when we see these statistics because it's just a number. And uh, again, why is this important to us? Well, we'll look at it from, thank you, sir. We'll look at it from the prophetic nexus in a moment. But get through my little papers here. I want to just look at a couple of things. I, I did print off. So, huge earthquake kills more than 2,200 in Turkey and Syria. Quake strikes central Turkey, northwest Syria. Death toll around, this was again uh, a couple days ago, 1,500 in Turkey, 700 in Syria. 
Adana, Turkey, Damascus. And again, most of you are familiar with where Israel is, right? Uh, if you look on this map, if you look, you see Lebanon just barely showing up on the screen. Syria, what's right below Lebanon? Israel. So Israel's right below that. So we're not that far to the north as to where this quake took place. The magnitude 7.8 quake, which hit before sunrise in bitter winter, bitter winter weather, was the worst to strike Turkey this century. It was followed in the early afternoon by another large quake of magnitude 7.7. There's been, as of today, uh, at least the last time I heard, there's been over 300 aftershocks, which of course is, is exacerbating the amount of people that have passed in this. It was not immediately clear how much damage had been done by the second quake, which, like the first, was felt across the region and endangered rescuers struggling to pull casualties from the rubble. We were shaken like a cradle. There were nine of us at home. Two sons of mine are still in the rubble. Did you catch that? Imagine that's your children. I mean, the, the horror. Uh, I watched one little clip uh, earlier today. A little three-year-old they pulled out, fortunately living, that was stuck under the rubble. And, of course, the dad was ecstatic, breaking down, and just crying out of uh, happiness, if you will. His son was okay. Uh, let's see. Temperatures in some areas were expected to fall to near freezing overnight, worsening conditions for people trapped under rubble or left homeless. Rain was falling on Monday after snowstorms swept the country at the weekend. It is already the highest death toll from an earthquake in Turkey since 1999 when a tremor of similar magnitude devastated the heavily populated eastern Mamara Sea region near Istanbul, killing more than 17,000. All right, so why is this something that I want to discuss at church? Well, it's because this has a very significant prophetic nexus as to what is going to be coming in the future. So again, we look at uh, Syria, Turkey, uh, which was former biblical Asia Minor, uh, just a horrific amount of people that were affected by this, and Aleppo and uh, Adana and other places right in that Syria area just north of it. All right, well, let's look at the, uh, why I find this extremely interesting. God is going to be using earthquakes in the future. And you say, okay, can you prove that? Well, happy to answer that question. Revelation chapter 6, we actually have two different major earthquakes that God's going to cause to take place during the seven-year tribulation period. Now, I see some newer folks here. If you don't know God's prophetic timeline, which is very important uh, in order to understand Bible prophecy, again, the next major event, and you can talk to me, the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That we which are alive and remain, should it happen in our generation, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, how do you know that that's the next major event on God's prophetic calendar? Well, that's an hour lecture. We go to Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the Jewish prophetic calendar, and the church age fits right between Daniel 9, 26 and Daniel 9, 27. Uh, it's the interlude, if you will, before the 70th prophetic week of Daniel, which is the seven-year tribulation, takes place. All right, so the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy have taken place up through Daniel 9, 24 to 26. The next major event 
will be the rapture, and then the 70th week of Daniel will kick in. Revelation 6 is the, the six sealed judgments, which are the, or the, the, actually the seven sealed judgments, which take place at the beginning of that seven-year tribulation period, which starts shortly after the rapture takes place. Uh, let's see, for 22 points today, what is the event, the event that starts the seven-year tribulation time clock ticking? What takes place? You know it. After the rapture, then what is the one that actually starts the, the clock going tick, tick, tick for the seven years? I heard it over here. The what? The covenant between what? Between whom and whom? The peace treaty that the and the Antichrist. All right, where does that come from? Daniel nine twenty seven. If you didn't hear it, uh, the the actual clicking of the clock, the prophetic time calendar, the 70, 70th week of Daniel begins when the Antichrist confirms a peace treaty with what group of people? Israel. Israel. Remember, Daniel nine is all from uh, a Jewish perspective. It's the Jewish calendar and uh, that's why the church is not involved in the tribulation why because the church is not part of the jewish prophetic calendar we're in the interlude right now uh colossians 1 24 to 27 and ephesians 3 1 to 7 point that out all right but that's another lecture as we know all right so what's going to happen uh, he said here comes this sixth seal where we've had five seals that have taken place since the start of the trib which has not happened yet the we're not in the tribulation. It happens after the church age saints are removed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great what? Great earthquake. A great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. Well, why is that going to take place? I don't know. Is it because of the massive earthquake that's taking place, the clouds of dust, whatever? Don't know. He doesn't explain it. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And here's, here's the results. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. All right, so what's going to happen in the prophetic future? It's going to be a devastating earthquake that will happen in the first part of the seven-year tribulation period. So when you look at these other things, why are they happening? What is taking place? Is this part of prophecy? No, it's not part of prophetic fulfillment. But what it is is setting the stage so when the things in Revelation happen, what are the people going to do instead of repenting and coming to Christ? It's just another event, just another horrible earthquake, just another terrible thing. And basically a lot of people just brush it off. Uh, verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Tremendous fear. We're talking about the ones that you would say, oh, these are the tough guys, the, the guys that are macho. What's going to happen to them? Folks, they're going to go hide and try not to die. It's what's coming. So what is everyone else going to do that doesn't have these uh, alleged macho personas? They'll be doing the same thing. People will be fainting from fear. They'll be scared to death. Why? Because God's trying to get their attention. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the what? The wrath of the Lamb. Now, uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but if, you, if you're familiar with 
there's multiple different positions on when the rapture is going to take place. You have those that say, well, it's going to happen three and a half years into the tribulation. Others say it's going to happen after the tribulation. Others talk about the pre-wrath. There's a group out there, and they're very vocal about their beliefs. They've challenged me very strongly, uh, but it's all good. They can, and anybody's free to challenge what I state here, by the way. It, it's all good. But here's the answer to why is there, we're what's called pre-tribulation. In other words, pre-tribulation rapture, we're out of here before what starts. The tribulation, pre, that's it, pre-tribulation. God takes us out, tribulation begins. All the other positions all come from one misunderstanding of Dan, basically, they don't go to Daniel 9 and understand the prophetic calendar. So if you go to the New Testament, and I have a message, it's on, we have it on the internet, it's on sermonaudio.com, called Sorrow Not, um, Scripture's Most Compelling Argument for the Pre-Tribulation Rapture. If you understand God's prophetic calendar, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it's impossible to mess up when the rapture is going to take place. If you try to prove the rapture from... First Thessalonians, it's not going to, you're, you're guessing. If you're going to try and do it from Second Thessalonians, which is where the, the mid-trib people come because, again, there's a misinterpretation there from my humble opinion, and uh, any other positions because they don't understand the Jewish prophetic calendar. We're not part of the Jewish calendar. This is the church age, which is the interlude uh, between uh, Daniel's 69th and 70th week which is the tribulation period. But here's the interesting thing. These judgments, these, these seal judgments, every scholar around, regardless of what, if, if they believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture, all believe that these happen in the first part of the tribulation. And God makes it very clear his what has come? His what? His wrath. The tribulation is God's wrath poured on the, out on this earth for seven years to do what? To prepare for who's coming. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 11 to 21. So when Jesus Christ literally returns to the earth, this earth has to be the best shape it's ever been in since the Garden of Eden. And that's exactly what the tribulation will do. It will purge this place. All right? That's a earthquake, a massive earthquake that happens during the first three and a half years sometimes. Now let's go to one other earthquake. This one happens literally right before Christ returns. A devastating one. Uh, Revelation 16, 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bull if you got the King James Version, the word vile is used. So alright, there's I think most of you know this one. There's how many major sets of judgment in Revelation? Four. The first one is how many is the what? The first judgments are called the what? We just looked at them. Seal. First, the, the Revelation 6 talks about the seven seal judgments. The next set are called the what? Say what? Trumpets. Trumpets. All right, how many of those are there? Seven trumpet judgments. They get more severe in nature. I like to call the trumpet judgments the one-third because one-third of the sea is, is destroyed. One-third of the 
Fresh springs are destroyed. One-third of the grass is destroyed. One-third of the trees are destroyed. So you find that in Revelation 8 and 9. You get the Revelation 10 as the third set of judgments, which are known as the boom. Thunder, there you go. The thunder judgments. How much does God tell us about the thunder judgments? Goose egg, zero. So there you can, and by the way, if you go to Matthew chapter 24, it talks about these judgments. Do they get easier or worse? They get worse because he compares it to a lady in what? In childbirth, in labor, where you start out the contractions are hard, but further apart. Then they get harder and harder and closer and closer together, and he compares these judgments with that scenario. So we have the seal judgments, which are, again, horribly bad. We just read about one where people are trying to hide under rocks. It's going to be so bad. Tremendous destruction. We get into the trumpet judgments where a third of the earth is basically destroyed at that time. We get into the thunder judgments, and he says, guess what? I'm not telling you what they are. So you can use your imagination. Then you get to this last set, which are the bull or vile judgments, another seven. And now we're in the last judgment. The seventh angel poured out his bull into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven. Is there a temple in heaven? Literal interpretation of Scripture, yes. The, the ones on earth are not the ones in heaven, totally separate. So a voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne. By the way, who sits on the throne? Who? God who? God the Father. So uh, a voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightning. And there was a what? A great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city, speaking of Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Here it is now. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Just, I mean, talk, you want to talk about devastating. This is absolutely what's going to come before Christ returns. Not at the rapture, but at his what? Second coming. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Anybody know how much a talent is? About what? A hundred pounds, right? So uh, about the weight of a talent, which is around a hundred pounds in our, in our weight measure. Men did what? blaspheme God. What is his point here? He's trying to draw people to himself. Let me ask you a question. So we have a minimum that we know right now. 11,000 people have died in Turkey and Syria in the last couple days because of this horrific earthquake. I'm wondering next week, if all uh, next Sunday, if all the churches around the world are going to be filled up with people repenting and getting right with God. What do you think? Why not? Shouldn't, they get, shouldn't this be a message that life is short and that God is going to bring justice on? Do you think people get that? Do you think they're going to get it when this happens? Well, God says they're not going to get it. In other words, he, this one is actually when it happens, which is, it, I mean, if the rapture happens tonight, it's a minimum of seven years from tonight. This horrible thing is going to take place, and what are people going to do? blaspheme God, forget him, don't need it, whatever. 
Is that amazing? I, I mean, it is. It, it really is. So great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Not only did they endure the horrible earthquake, but these gigantic hail will be coming down. You're like, well, that's crazy. This is, are, are you sure you believe this? Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely believe what it says. When God says there's going to be 100-pound hail coming down during the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be 100-pound hail coming down. Uh, it's going to happen. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. So why well, we've never seen that happen before. Well, I agree. I've never seen that happen either. But is it going to happen? Is the Bible true? I mean, it's inspired. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is what? Inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's given by God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So uh, uh, it, it, it is the only thing that we can rely upon. There is nothing else. All right, so what's going to take place? Why all these horrible things that are coming? Well, because we know, again, Jesus Christ will be coming back to this earth, and he will be setting up his kingdom on this earth. And you've heard me say this set of verses probably about 6,000 times since I've been here. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 7, talks six times in seven verses, tells us how long is the millennium going to be. How long is the millennium going to be? <laughs> A thousand years. Six times in seven verses, Revelation 21 to 7, he makes that very clear. Uh, so Jesus will indeed be setting up his kingdom on earth uh, after the rapture seven years later. You say, well, what are we going to be doing? Well, what are we going to be doing? After, after we go up to heaven at the rapture or death, whichever comes first, what are we going to be doing for seven years? Where are we going to be? All right, we'll be up in heaven. We'll enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I believe comes right at the end of uh, the seven years. Uh, bottom line is we'll be with Christ. That's what he said. Absent, we're, the, the moment we leave here, be a death or rapture, we're with Christ. Now, when Jesus comes back at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, where are you going to be? You're going to be with him. How do we know that? Again, Revelation 19, 11 to 21, Jesus comes back on a what? On a white horse. Okay. And uh, who, who else is riding right along with him? All believers. all believers. Revelation 19, 11 to 21 says, And all the saints will mount up on white horses and uh, come back with Christ to go to the battle of Armageddon where he'll wipe out all the detractors and then he'll set up his kingdom. All right. Uh, you say, are there horses in heaven? And I think I told you this. I had one guy stand at the back of a church in Oregon I was preaching at. In fact, it was uh, Valerie's home church. The guy comes up to me, and he's a little miffed, and he says, I thought he was miffed, and he gets, gets real serious with me. And he said, I want you to answer a question, yes or no. I said, all right. And what's the question? Are there animals in heaven? And I said, well. And he says, no, no, no. You, you didn't listen to me. He gets mad at me. He says, you didn't listen to me. Are there animals in heaven? He said, do you believe Revelation 21 is true, that there's going to be white horses in heaven? Yes. That's all I want to know. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, I know there's going to be white horses in heaven. Are there going to be any other animals? Yes, Josh, about that. 
<laughs> Is my dog going to heaven? Next. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, well, let's get down to something we know for sure. Let's get in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 12. Last week, uh, I got through about just a couple of verses, just a very quick reminder for, or a refresher if you weren't here, uh, about what we were talking about. We spent the entire time almost talking about a guy named Herod. Uh, what was the name of and there's just to give you a clue, and I'm not going to go through the whole lesson again, but what was the Herod? What was his title, the Herod that existed when Jesus was basically born? Herod the Great. Did Herod the Great have descendants? Yes, he did. In Acts chapter 12, we're actually the Herod being talked about here, and now for 32 and a half points who was the Herod that's being talked about in Acts 12? What was his, let's start with, what was his relationship to Herod the Great? Wow, very good. All you get 32 points. So you can go to Starbucks and pay 10 bucks for a coffee that only costs five now. That used to be funny. Now I am wearing that joke out. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's actually Herod the Great's grandson who is this particular Herod that's being talked about. So we're just going to go through the first couple of verses quickly, and then we'll get into the new material. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, isn't that interesting? Harass some from the church. So the government back during the, the start of the church, if you will, was it favorable towards Christianity? No, it was severe persecution. And... Uh, if you think it's bad today, it was exponentially worse during the first centuries of, of the start of the church. And uh, it starts out with, then he killed James, which we talked about last week, the brother of John with a sword. Now, James and John were called what? The sons of thunder, the sons of thunder. So they're powerful guys, but Herod kills one of them. He, what, what would his title have been? in relationship to Christ. What was he? A what? A disciple, an apostle, all fit. Uh, James and John, of course, were part of the inner circle of the twelve. Well, they killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, which was done under Herod. And uh, we saw this next, and here's what we'll pick up in a moment. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, wait a minute, it pleased the Jews, so we have a division that's being pre presented here during the first century. It, James and John, were they Jewish or Gentile? They're Jewish. So wait a minute, why, why is this pleasing the Jews? Because there's a difference between embracing the Old Testament Judaism and embracing, if you will, the New Testament Christianity, which, of course, these individuals did. So we've got this division that's taking place. And, and, and again, just a, a little quick refresher from uh, what took place. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, i.e., that kind of gives it away, how did the people respond to Christ when he first came to Jerusalem the Passion Week? Wow, this is great, wonderful. Here he comes. Why did the people celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem? 
What, it, what, what was the big attraction? Free what? Yeah, bring in the kingdom. What, what came along with that, though? What did they think was coming? What was he doing? Healing people. What else? Feeding people. I, I mean, thousands were being fed. He fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. Then he feeds the 4,000 plus women and children. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. I mean, it's, it, people are loving it. It's like this is the greatest thing ever. So, so Jesus walks, comes into Jerusalem. They, you remember the triumphal entry? They throw their coats down. They throw palm branches down. What's the? Just a quick reminder. What's the first thing Jesus did after he came in? He went to what place? He went to the temple. And what did he do at the temple? He threw a fit. Yeah, he cleared out the, the money changers. He, I mean, he. how did the Jews respond to him when he cleared out the temple? Were they happy about it and saying, well, praise the Lord, we need to get right and repent? Immediately rejected. In less than a couple of days after the triumphal entry, where does Jesus end up? Right there. They go from welcoming the king, welcoming the guy who is providing us food and casting out demons and healing the sick and uh, 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 just doing miraculous things to the point where crucify him, crucify him is being screamed. All right? So what do we have here? The Jewish people, how many of well, how many? We have no clue. We have a small remnant of Jewish people that come to Christ in the early part of Acts. And, of course, we've watched that progression he reached out from the Jewish people, then to the Samaritans, and then we're, we're reaching out to the Gentile world, which is starting now. And because he saw, uh, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, in other words, the unbelieving Jewish people, unbelieving in Christ, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. All right, why, why do you think he went after Peter? Say so what? <laughs> Okay, we'll reject that statement on his face. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, but who said oh, Peter was what? He was a leader. He was a leader among leaders. So he, I mean, they, they looked at him. It's like, if you want to take down a regime, who do you go after? Go after the boss. Go after the leader. So that's what they do. They seize Peter. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So we talked last week, week uh, a little bit about what the Passover was. Uh, uh, Jesus actually is going to celebrate or have the Passover, which is also known as the Seder meal. We actually, last, uh, last Sunday when we had communion, I went to that passage. Jesus is eating the Passover with his disciples. And... Uh, he finishes the Passover meal with his disciples. He goes to Gethsemane. He gets arrested. And a few hours later, he's on the cross. All right, so we're not going to go through this again. We did this last week. You can watch last week's lesson. But I do want to hit this one more quick time. So why, why, was, why are these Passover feasts all given, or all the feasts, not just the Passover? Leviticus 23, it goes through the seven major Jewish feasts. And it's just interesting, if you didn't see this last week, I'll just review it real quickly one more time. So there's four major feasts that take place in the spring. Now Passover is usually by which holiday that we celebrate? 
Easter, all right? Totally different holidays, if you will, totally different venues, but uh, nonetheless, it's easy to remember it that way. So our Jewish friends are celebrating Passover, usually sometimes close to when we're celebrating Easter. All right, so again, all these things happened way, way back in 1445 B.C. when these feasts were all written about by what author? Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. All right, so in Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 23 now, he talks about these feasts. And, and, and I just find this very exciting because Scripture interprets Scripture. So in 1445 B.C., when Moses wrote down these feasts, number one, we have the Passover. And, of course, we went through Exodus last week. Uh, God basically told the Jewish people, kill a what? A lamb or goat, spread its blood on the doorposts of your home and the lintel, and they were stuck in Egypt, and God said, listen, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt by killing what? The firstborn of people and beasts in Egypt. And he said, made it very clear. If you put the blood on as I've instructed you, and the death angel comes through, I will do what? I will pass over your house, and your firstborn will be saved. All right. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast, literally starts at the end of Passover. The next feast comes ten days, or I'm sorry, uh, three days later, which is the Feast of what? First Fruits. And then 50 days later after Passover is what feast? Pentecost. Now you say, well, why do we care about that? Well, because who is crucified on Passover? Who is crucified on Passover? 1,445 years after Moses wrote it. Who was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Jesus. Who was resurrected three days later on the Feast of First Fruits? Jesus. Now, think before you say the next one. <laughs> Fifty days later, who came at the Feast of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. All right? So it's just, it's very interesting that those feasts were fulfilled in the same day order through what Christ did and the Holy Spirit did. All right, then we talked a little bit. There's three feasts left that technically have not been fulfilled by anything that Christ has done. So here's the rub. And we talked a little bit about this. Will Christ fulfill the last three feasts the same as he did the first four feasts? And the speculation is in all probability, maybe. We don't know. Uh, I, I, because God never says he's going to do it, but it's interesting if he fulfilled the first four in the same day order, will he fulfill the last three in the same day order? Well, let's go through them real quick just so you, you have a little bit of background on it. All right, so the Feast of Trumpets. Now, here's, here is a serious rub theologically. There are two events that people like to put as taking place, that will take place, this is all future now, on the Feast of Trumpets. What's the name, next major event on God's prophetic calendar? The rapture. All right? So there are those that say, well, Jesus has to come back at the Feast of Trumpets. People have wrote books on it, made millions of dollars off it, set dates off of it. Has any of them been correct yet? No. All right, so here's my, and again, all I can say is my educated speculation on this. I personally don't believe the rapture will take place on the Feast of Trumpets, but... God 
could choose to come back on that day at the rapture. There's, he doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. I don't specifically believe theologically that the Feast of Trumpets is referring to the church age, and here's why. Because this is Jewish feast. It all has to do with the Jewish prophetic calendar. So again, I'm not saying you can't come on, on the Feast of Trumpets, but I'm saying I don't think there's good biblical cause to force that and, and make it happen. What do I think? Who knows? Anyway, um, here's some, again, this is speculation based on the last four feasts being fulfilled in the same day order. The second coming is, I mean, we're up in heaven. The church age is done. Seven years have gone by, which is on the Jewish prophetic calendar. Jesus is returning. If, and it's an if, and I'm stating very carefully, it's an if. If Jesus returns on the Feast of Trumpets, which he could, then there is a 10-day gap between the first Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Well, what could take place then? Well, we know that all the tribulation survivors are going to be judged and so forth, which would fit right in with the Day of Atonement. And then three days later, which was when the Feast of Tabernacles took place, we know that that is something that points to the Millennial Kingdom. You say, well, how do you get that? Let's go and put on your thinking caps for a moment. What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Who was, first of all, who was there? Okay, Jesus is there. Who else shows up? Okay, Elijah, Moses are there. And who are the disciples that were there? Peter, James, and John. What did, what did Peter do when he saw the transfiguration take place? What did he say we should do? Peter says, let me build a sukkah, S-U-K-K-O, or A-A, sukkah. You go back to the Old Testament and you go to the current, what Jewish people do today. And I've shown you this, uh, I don't have the pictures today because I wouldn't plan on going here. So Jewish Orthodox, even through today, if you go into the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood up in Sherman Park, Milwaukee area, I've been invited to when they put up their sukkahs. The sukkah is another word for a tabernacle or a tent. And Peter says, we need to put up a sukkah, a tabernacle for Elijah and Moses why did he say that? Because he's seeing what he perceived to be the starting of what event? The millennial kingdom. What did Jesus tell Peter? What did, what did he tell him? Yeah, and what did he say as far as did they build those tents or those sukkahs or those tabernacles? It wasn't time. So Peter jumped ahead and now it would have been a minimum of, uh, let's see, 2,000 years of the church age, seven years of the tribulation, 1,000 years, uh, uh, well, it would be right after the tribulation, which would signify the millennial kingdom is starting. Now you say, man, that's a whole lot of stuff in a couple of sentences there. It is. But it's interesting that basically God said, stand down, Peter, it's not time. But it's interesting that what he was doing 
would be the thing that would inaugurate when Jesus comes back to set up what? His what? What's he going to stay in? In the temple. The temple is going to be formed. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, Jesus comes back, he builds his temple. The sukkahs, the tabernacles were all small pieces of looking forward to when the big temple would be built, which will happen during the millennium. All right, so you got about 10 minutes of something I should have spent an hour on in order to make it clear, but it sticks it out there. All right, go back and watch last week. So here's the, here's the punchline. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now this is New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaking, since you truly are unleavened. Basically he's saying the church should be without what? Should be without sin. Should be without the old leaven which puffs up and, and is sinful, if you will, on a uh, symbolic basis. But here's the real punchline. For indeed Christ our what? Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We go right back here, going through that same day concept of what took place with the first four feasts and may be fulfilled in the same day order in the fall feast. Uh, we'll be down here. We'll be able to keep an eye on what's happening when we get here with Christ. All right. Uh, we'll skip that. All right, let's get into a very interesting, and most of the, what we're going through the rest of the night, Two very familiar accounts, this, this one especially, uh, our Sunday school friends and Awana friends and all that are familiar with. So this is, it's one of those accounts, and again, it's, most people use the word story. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's an account of what actually took place. All right, so Peter's in prison. Shocking. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the what? The church. There is a super object lesson that we're going to get out of this tonight, or a super application. When you pray for something, what is your honest expectation out of something you're praying for? Trust God, which is, of course, a good start. What we're going to see tonight is here's people that are praying for something, but they absolutely don't believe God's going to do it. <laughs> so they were going through the motions. They showed up at prayer meeting, and they had no expectation of God actually fulfilling what they're praying for. And I said uh, uh, in March, 630 to 7, uh, the entire month, 630 to 7, we're going to be praying for uh, it's, it's a whole month we're dedicating to revival here at the church. Getting right with God, moving forward, evangelism, exhortation, and edification uh, to move us forward and prepare us for really getting ready and sparking things as we enter into spring. And on those four prayer meetings that we're going to have in March from 6.30 to 7 before we get back into Acts, do we ask, and if I ask the question, and I had... Everybody write down anonymously their answer. Do you believe that God can cause revival in today's church? I, I believe it can happen. You say, well, you know, the likelihood isn't good. Well, okay, I, I may agree with that, but it's like, if I'm going to pray for revival, and if we're going to preach on revival, and we're going to, I think we ought to kind of believe what we're doing. And, and God says here, he's like, okay, uh, Peter's in prison. 
And the church, Unigrove Baptist Church, is praying, Oh God, would you deliver Peter from prison? And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. So we have four guards that are with Peter. They got him chained up, and he ain't getting away. I mean, this guy has to stay in custody. No jail breaks. Verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. So we've got the guards, they're chained to this prisoner, and the angel shows up, and all of a sudden the chains fall off, and the guards are kind of out of it. They're dazed out, God's got them sleeping, and it's like, okay, Peter, come on down. We're doing a jailbreak, and that's exactly what happens here. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself, in other words, put your clothes on, tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he, Peter, went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. So Peter is in shock too. He's like, I must be having a vision. This can't be real. I mean, he's kind of stunned by it. I, I, okay, and you say, well, that, that Peter, he never gets it. If God's, I mean, put yourself in Peter's place here for a minute. All of a sudden, this miraculous thing has taken place, and it's like, am I in a dream? Now, sometimes I've heard people say something really, really good happens, and, and uh, you, you're like, man, is, is this real? And that's what Peter was going through. He's like, is this really happening, or am I seeing something? Well, it was real. Verse 10, when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Now, actually, when I was when I was reading through some of the commentaries on this, there were actually uh, uh, there was this mythology that when you walked up to certain gates, they would open. So, of course, the uh, the pagans would clap, grasp onto this that some mythological demonic thing happened that got Peter out. Well, it certainly wasn't that. It was God Himself taking care of Peter. All right, so uh, the gate opens up, and they went out and went down one street, and immediately, immediately the angel departed from him. So did the angel take care of Peter and get him out of prison? Yeah. Absolutely. Now he's like, you're on your own, brother. Head down. Verse 11, And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. All right, so think about what's taking place here. What happened to James a little bit earlier? I killed him. What was Peter's fate right now? They're going to execute him in public where people can see it and please the whom? The Jewish people that hadn't come to Christ. So, but God said, no, not on my watch. And, and Peter is delivered at this time. And, uh, and from all the expectation, what did the Jews want? Well, they wanted his head just like they wanted James. Verse 12, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together doing what? Praying. Praying. Now here's where it gets very interesting. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. 
When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. All right, now we got a fairly good start here, except that here's this poor guy just had a jailbreak, and she leaves him standing outside. Oh, it's Peter! She goes running in, tells everybody, hey, we got, we got Peter here. He's been delivered. All right, so, so far, so good. But wait, there's more. All right, so kind of a blurry picture here, but just, I mean, you just imagine. Peter's there. Come on, come on, let me in. You don't understand what I've just been through. And Rhoda's there and, uh, well, forgets to open the gate. Verse 15, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, guys, I just saw Peter. He's outside the door. And here's, yeah, you're nuts, right? And the church which is praying for Peter and for his release and for him not to be killed, what does the church say? Uh, Rhoda, uh, you're crazy. You're seeing things. What's your, what, you know, you're, not, you're not in reality, young lady. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they're like, all right, Rhoda, we get it. There's no way Peter's out there, even though we've been praying for him to be there. It's got to be his angel. Well, that's an interesting thought, too. So where did they get that concept from? Well, again, mythological or guardian angel or whatever, it doesn't tell us. But they, it's like, well, it's not Peter. It's got to be an angel that's like Peter. So what happens? Poor Peter is still out there, ba-boom, ba-boom, knocking, knocking, knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were what? They're astonished. You know, folks, this is such a powerful statement. This is God's people. This is a church that believes in Christ. It's a, a church that had experienced back in Acts 2 the filling of the Holy Spirit. They've seen things. They've heard things. And quite frankly, they've seen and heard things a lot more impressive than what we see today. They've seen miracles taking place, instantaneous miracles. And yet these people, knowing who God is, seeing things that they've seen, have this literal appearance of Peter and they are absolutely astonished. Like, is this for real? I can't believe it. God actually did this? To me, that's a real wake-up call. Do we believe that God can still do amazing, marvelous things? Do we? And we say yes, and I trust we mean yes, but it's like when it really gets down to it, do we really, really, really believe that, yeah, God can still do this? I have people tell me all the time, I've been witnessing to whoever it may be. I've gone to them over and over and over again, and they're never going to get saved. I'm like, ouch. <laughs> And I'm like, what do you mean they're never going to get saved? How do you know that? Well, I've tried and I've tried and I've, I've done every possible thing I can. And I'm like, well, yeah, uh, you've done everything you can, but maybe God's not done yet. 
And uh, the, Bible tells, the Bible tells us to do two things with the unsaved. What are they? To do what? Two things. Think of a gardener. Plant and water. We plant the seed. So I always say when you're witnessing to people, just don't use your words. Use Scripture. You don't have to hold it in front of them, but you can quote it. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing either dividing asunder, soul and marrow, and is discerning, discerning of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is what convicts people, not our rhetoric. Agreed? Rhetoric is okay. Sharing your testimony is okay, but always spice it up with using what works, the Word of God. So the bottom line is the people are absolutely astonished that God actually is doing something in their midst. Folks, when we pray for revival, when we pray for someone to come to Christ, until they breathe their last breath, the game is not over. I don't mean game in a bad way. It's not over. I can tell you of multiple people that were on their deathbed that had heard the gospel over and over and over, and all of a sudden, it's the 11.59 hour in their life. And, I'll, and it has happened many times. I share, I'm like, do you understand... And, of course, I'm, I'm speaking very kindly and tenderly at this point, but it's like, do you understand that your life is coming to a close? And all of a sudden, reality hits them. Oh, yes, I do. Do you know where you're going? Do you want to know where you're going? Yes. And you share the gospel. And all of a sudden, they've gone, they, they receive Christ, at, I mean, literally, at the 11.59 moment. And if you die right now, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go to heaven. Are you still concerned about that? I'm ready to go. Every single time when someone comes to Christ at the 11.59 moment, God does a miraculous thing, prepares their, I mean, they trust Christ, they, God prepares their heart. I have never, ever, ever seen a saved person tremble, scream, scared the moment God's going to take them home. Never seen it. Why? Because God, I don't know how he does it. I, I haven't experienced it. I've not been there. I'm not in any hurry to get there. But at the moment when you're going to breathe your last and you're one of God's people, I've watched it with my mom. I've watched it with my dad. I've watched it with people I know. And there's this wonderful calmness that God gives to his people as they transfer, if you will, from this life into eternity. And it's a happy thing. I can't tell you how many times I've watched people, and it's amazing. I don't know what's going on. I can't see anything. But I watch their eyes when they come to, and they, they literally look up. And I've seen it multiple times. Now, people say, well, are they looking at an angel? I don't know. Are they looking at heaven opening? I don't know. I could write a book about it and lie, which I'm not about to do. But uh, I've seen it so many times, literally open their eyes, look, get a smile on their face, and a few seconds later, they're gone. And, and, I, and I, I do. I believe God honestly takes people that know Christ and ushers them into heaven. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Why do you think Peter said to be quiet? 
<laughs> Two things. One is he's like, I got to tell you what happened. Listen. That's what appears to happen. He's like, would you guys did you settle yourselves down now and, and listen? And the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to who? James. Now, if you're remembering what we looked at in the first several verses of chapter 12, who had been killed earlier in the chapter? Is this the same James? Uh, definitely not. So there's multiple James in Scripture. So we have James, who is the son of John, who is the one that was killed in the first part. This is James, the Lord's what? Half-brother. Okay, now could Jesus have a full brother? No, he had a half-brother because... Uh, he didn't have a heavenly or have an earthly daddy, so it was a half brother. But James was was that. So he said, "Go tell these things to James, my half brother, and to the brethren." And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod, remember the grandson of Herod the Great, had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that what should happen to him. And we put to death. Now, I was in, and we got some others that are out there in the audience today that uh, uh, when I joined the sheriff's office, I spent uh, close to three and a half years I spent in jail. He said, well, what'd you do wrong? Nothing. I was one guard. <laughs> three and a half years in jail. And I was on the right side of the bars, and I hated it, much less being on the other side. But the bottom line is, what do you think would happen to a correctional officer or a deputy or anyone else who's guarding a prisoner that escapes today? Is, is that a good thing? Of course not. I mean, it's like uh, unless there's extenuating circumstances, you're not going to get killed. You may get indicted if you had part in the crime of, and boy, I could tell stories about that too. Deputies that would get sucked into schemes with inmates, they'd, and they'd help them escape. I, I'm, we had several folks that ended up in prison over that. Um, they get sucked in and get conned, and the next thing you know, they're helping inmates get out or an inmate get out. Uh, we had a bad, well, I won't get into all that, but bottom line is it does happen. Back in the day, and especially now, if you are one of the guards and you're chained to Peter and all of a sudden Peter gets loose, what do you think the boss is thinking? Conspiracy. How did you let that guy go? He didn't just slip those chains off. So death was the punishment for allowing their guy to get loose. So they should be put to death and, went, and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. All right. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they, be, and they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So we're going into another issue now. So on a set day, Herod arrived in royal apparel. So this is a little bit north of, if you know where Tel Aviv is, it's right about where Tyre and Sidon is today. So they're, they're having a tough time, and Herod says, ah, I need to go there and, and uh, wow the people with my great speech. Now, I want to be real careful right now because I want to make an analogy, but I really don't want to make it. So there's an individual that spoke on TV last night that some of you might know. Shh. I'm going to do it. Uh, who's the Speaker of the House? 
and McCarthy. Yeah, it's like, um, anyway, I don't want to get political. But uh, this was a political event that's happening here. Herod's putting on the, basically he's going to do the State of the Union at Tyre and Sidon. I mean, in all reality. So you just saw, if you watched it last night, you have a little bit of a taste in your mouth or whatever taste. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. All right, here he is, the boss is here, uh, the great orator, the great king is here, and the people kept shouting the voice of a small g, God and not of a man. Now this guy's a pagan. Herod is a pagan. And yet when they scream out that, hey Herod, you are a God, and they put him up on, the, on this uh, figurative pedestal, God didn't take this as being a, a silly, funny incident. Then immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to whom? This pagan king who's over the Jewish people, who is actually a Roman, and he goes even north of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Tel Aviv today. He's talking to these people. They raise him up as the wonder of a God, and God says, strike him horribly. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Now, and I'll just throw this out there. Josephus, and you've heard me use that name many times. Josephus, a first century historian. He was a Roman Jewish guy, but he was not a Christian. He was not a believer in Christ. So he wrote uh, multiple books during the first century giving account. He states in his book, first century historian, that Herod suffered for five days before he actually died. Now, that's the only account we have of it. But uh, uh, what did he do? He was eaten by worms and died. So we're talking a horrible painful, disgusting death that he goes through. And why did this happen? Because here's a ruler, here's a king, and God said, oh, so you're going to take, take the, uh, my glory area. And he kills a guy. Now, I mean, in our day and age, you don't see this. I mean, if it happens, we don't know about it. Here it's literally explicitly stating God killed him because he didn't give the glory to God. So, if nothing else, it's a caution to us. So people will come up to me after a message and so forth, or after something I did, or maybe uh, you do it with other folks. It's like, man, I really appreciate X that you did, or something you said and all that. And, and it's real easy, and, and, I, and it's like when somebody says something positive, it's like, what's the right way to address them? And it's like, do I just say thank you and let it go, which I do most of the time. But it's like, you know, a lot of folks that uh, I'll come up to them, maybe at a conference, when I'm, man, I really appreciate what you did. And you know what their answer is? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And it's like, well, that's a pretty smart, smart thing to say, quite frankly. It's like, don't, don't take the credit. It's not you. If, if anything good happened, it's not because of me or anyone else. It's because God used the vessel to get his work done. So a good, a good bet on how to answer something in sincerity is, if you've been blessed, what should we say? Well, praise the Lord. And uh, if Herod would have done that, 
uh, he, he wouldn't have had that five-day stomach ache that ended up killing him. Make sense? I mean, God does not want to give his glory away. Uh, so it's, very, it's, a, it's just a, a wonderful, interesting thing. All right, end it, and then we're done. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Who's Saul, by the way? The Apostle Paul. Remember, Saul, uh, uh, his name will eventually turn completely and be used as Paul instead of Saul. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had fulfilled their ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark which we'll be talking about in the future. All right, um, interesting thing. So what? let me just close with the two main concepts here. Number one, do you believe that God answers prayer tonight? I want us to really, if, if we get anything out of tonight, is if God does something mar- marvelous, and he does a lot of things that are marvelous, Believe it. God did not die. God is still very, very much alive. God is still changing people. God is still doing wonderful, marvelous things today. And when we pray, pray earnestly, just like these people did for Peter. And when God answers the prayer, don't say, I can't believe it was God. We can dismiss what God is doing as simply, well, natural resources made it happen. Try to refrain from doing that. When something marvelous or even miraculous happens, don't try to explain it away. Well, you know, maybe this is just good circumstances came together. Um, I'll close with this one. This is my last closing. I always close 10 to 20 times in a message. Right, I told the guys about it. It's like we got to watch our time. I'm only five minutes over, so I'm not too bad. But don't you do it. <laughs> All right, last thing, and I and I and I will because it's a moving little thing. I'm going to share. So most of you are aware that I have a son named Trevor. He comes to this church. He's married to Abigail, and there's two Abby Schmidts. Kevin has an Abby Schmidt. I have a daughter-in-law named Abby Schmidt. Two different people. Anyway. Uh, my Abby Schmidt. But anyway, when Trevor, when uh, uh, I had two girls that are, hey, Tabitha, how much younger is Trevor than Tiffany? 12 years. So Tabitha is my oldest, but she's still very young. Then uh, my other daughter, which is how many years apart? Two and a half. And then Trevor comes 12 years later. Valerie tells me that uh, we're pulling into uh, the charcoal grill. I remember it like yesterday, and she says, uh, I got the flu. And I'm like, what do you mean you got the flu? She's like, I got the baby flu. And I remember taking my, I was so shocked, I'm holding onto the steering wheel, and I put my head down about knocking myself out. <laughs> and that's why I am the way I am today. But anyway, that wasn't the big news. Because we were a little bit older, she did what many ladies do. She went to uh, um, went through different things, and we had insurance at that time, which we didn't with our first two kids. I paid both of them off on the installment plan. We actually had good insurance now. So we go to the doctor, and it's like, well, you know, you're you're a little bit older than uh, we we want to be really careful with you. Speaking of my wife. 
So she goes in, they start doing ultrasounds and whatever, and um, some of you know the story, and it's not a story, it's true, but they do the ultrasound, and uh, they're going over Trevor's head at that time, and when he's pretty small yet, I mean, just a couple of months into it, and they're like, you see, uh, there's a real problem here. The brain is not there. It's not developing. All right. And... uh, we came back a second time. I was in there. I watched the, them do the ultrasound, and it's like, this baby is not right. And the, the brain is not developed right. It's literally, it's, it's almost impossible to see it because it's not growing right. And this baby is going to be severely, severely handicapped if it even lives through the pregnancy. The doctor told us, you need to do an abortion now. They rode my wife and I. They used every sales pitch available. You need to get rid of this baby now. If it lives, it's going to be a burden on society. It's going to be a burden on the taxpayers. It's going to wreck your marriage. I'm telling you, they went through every possible scenario trying to get us to abort our baby. Finally, you said, well, what'd you do? I looked at Valerie, she looked at me, we walked out and never went back. And said, we are not going to abort the baby, period. Now, this is what I did. I'm done with this. For the next six, seven months, whatever was left of the pregnancy, literally, and I mean literally, prayed day and night, night and day. If I wasn't working and totally involved in something, my mind was absolutely fixating on praying for that baby. And pray and pray and pray. It finally came to the day where, it's, where the baby was fully grown and it was time to induce Trevor. And I watched as he was delivered. He came out with his rear end first, face down. I'm like, I think it's a boy, but I don't know. and he comes out and his head pops out they gave him a little teeny slap he begins to cry just like a normal baby would they picked him up and I'm like how is he? and they're like well we need to clean him off need to suction him out and uh, then we'll give him to you they turn over Trevor and he looked like a normal baby Smelled like a normal baby, not good. (laughs) They cleaned him up, brought him out. No oxygen, no anything. Like, how's the boy? How's he doing? Well, he's perfect. And uh, 26 years later, college education, manager at a business in New Berlin, athlete, and he's smart. And the brain works just fine. And why did why is that? Because God determined that he would be born and allowed to live a normal life. And all God's people said, Amen. believe God, pray. God may not choose to answer your prayers the same way he chose to answer mine with Trevor, but is God good? Yes. All the time. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this wonderful reminder from Peter that 
when you delivered him from prison and did a miraculous thing to uh, save him from death from the hands of Herod. Lord, help us not to be like those that are astonished and unbelieving when you answer prayer, but to be rejoicing and thankful and to praise you for what you've done. And then, Father, help us also when something good happens to us and maybe we get a, a little praise or some accolades to remember that it's not because of who we are. It's not because we're so good or great in and of ourselves, but it's because you're the one that allowed us to do something that helped others. So, Lord, help us to keep you first. Help us to give all the glory to you all the time. And, Father, I pray now that you'd uh, dismiss us with your, with your blessing as we go. Bring us all back on Sunday that we may all rejoice together as we serve you. Lord, protect us now. Bless the young people as they uh, are finishing up their youth groups and high school groups. Bless them, Lord, as they get their last uh, a few instructions from God's Word. Bless them in a great way. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks.